written to Christians who were scattered about because of persecution owing to their faith. And James is writing with the purposes of equipping them for how to live out their life amidst various trials, how to live out their faith in the midst of difficult days. This letter is highly practical. It's highly instructive. It's highly convicting. We've said this over and over, but James is seeking to close the gap between what we know and how we live. James is wanting us to live out a faith that works. He will later say a faith that doesn't live out what it believes is a worthless faith. And James does all of this with tremendously pinpointed and detailed and and. Uh, precise care as a pastor. Uh, James is writing as a really effective pastor. His love for the people, his care for them, it overflows in every sentence that is written. And so this morning, you and I have the privilege of being pastored by James as we come to his word. And again, to rightly understand what we're talking about in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we have to rightly understand everything that James has laid out thus far. If you'll remember from a few weeks ago, James began his letter in verses 1 through 4, reminding these isolated and discouraged Christians of the reality of their trials, the purpose of their trials, and their response to these trials. And James is going to say that these trials are not uh, kind of meaningless happenstance incidents. No, they are divinely designed by God. They are meant to produce something in us. And because of what these trials produce in us, James says, knowing that then, consider them, uh, consider these trials as all joy. Verses five through eight, he informed us of what they needed most during the trials, and that was wisdom. They needed wisdom, wisdom that they didn't have, wisdom to be able to count these trials as all joy. He told them of the generosity of God who was to give this wisdom that they lacked. Last week, we watched as James applied this wisdom to the understanding of poverty and riches. It's essentially James is writing to these Christians to say each one of us are to view our lives not in terms of what we owe or what we own, what our lot is here, but view our lives in light of our eternal reward and destiny. This is why then those that are of humble circumstances can boast in their riches because their riches are not found here on this earth. They're laid up in glory. And so thus far in the letter of James, James has been allowing us to focus in on the external circumstances. And this morning, James is going to turn that focus inward. We're going to go from the external circumstances of trials, of poverty, of wealth, of lacking wisdom. And James is going to turn the focus inward. And I believe and I hope and I've been praying that he would help us gain a better understanding of our hearts and also a more stunning view of God's generosity. And so I'd like to pray as we begin our time this morning. Our holy triune God, we come to you and we thank you for the opportunity to be together, even if it's through an unusual medium. And we've just sang about you being altogether good and different. And the call and the invitation this morning is that we would behold you. We rejoice that you reign forever. Our hearts are glad that you are in control. You do all things well. Remind us of that this morning. And anything that comes into our lives comes first from and through your hands. And so as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us see your stunning generosity and your perplexing goodness. We want to behold you. We need to see more of you. And so help us. Help us see Christ as we gaze into the word. And we pray that you would change our lives as the result of it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So let's consider this morning for purposes of our time together in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's consider 
a few reminders that James gives to help Christians persevere during trials. In other words, or stated another way, James 1, 12 through 18, is the advice of James on how to endure. And so a few reminders that James will serve those original recipients of this letter, and by extension, we will be served this morning. Number one, God rewards those who endure through trials. God rewards those who endure through trials. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so James returns to the opening topic in the letter, this topic of enduring trials. And earlier he encouraged and exhorted these Christians who were discouraged and spread out and persecuted. He encouraged them to respond to trials with joy because knowing that the testing of their faith would produce perseverance. And perseverance, when it runs its full course, would bring them to a place of maturity, of completion, of lacking nothing. And here in verse 12, James promises a reward for those who endure trials by remaining faithful in the midst of the trial. And so let's understand this correctly. Let's just look at verse 12 to break this down. Blessed. Blessed is a much uh, richer word than we often understand. If you were to read Romans chapter 14, verse 22, you would see that happiness is is accompanied. It's a part of this word blessed, but there's so much more. This is such a richer word. Because what we know is that those who are blessed may not always be happy because of their trials. So there has to be something more at play. Blessed means to have the favor of God upon oneself. To have the favor of God upon oneself. To be fulfilled by God himself. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking when what is come to be known as the Beatitudes, and he's speaking of a life which is fulfilled, and it's a fulfilling life because it's under the favorable hand of God. This is why Jesus can say things that seemingly don't make sense and say you are blessed if you live by a a different standard, a different set of values, not because your life is easy, not because people will love you and think you're normal. No, but because you have the favor of God upon you and you have the fulfillment of God within you. And we may be prone to miss the truth that while God is at work in the trial and he's producing good through the trial, I'm helped by what commentator uh, J. Alec Motier says. So God is not only using the trial, he's not only working in the trial and through the trial, but he's also, as Motier says, he's imparting blessing as well as guiding us toward the great ultimate blessing of his approval. And so in so many ways in verse 12, you can look at how the Lord has so ordained trials. And you can see that he's not only at work in them to bring about perseverance in us, to bring us to completion, but he's also giving. He's giving the crown of life, bringing his people to a place of ultimate blessing. The favor of God isn't merely on those who are exposed to trial, but it's on those who persevere through the trial. Those who remain faithful to God in the trial. So that's what that means. Blessed is a man who perseveres, not just who endures, but who remains faithful to God. And again, James writing to these Christians who would have been scattered and discouraged, perhaps tempted to give up on their faith. And James says, no, 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 not just endure the trial, but endure it with great faith in your God. Perseverance, James has said, produces a settled and complete Christian character. I think I've quoted Paul Tripp every week that I've preached through this series. But it's this idea of how God is developing us 
and seeking to grow us in and through our trials, Tripp has said, God will take us where we haven't intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. Again, J. Alec Motier says, we often cry, God, give me life so that I can endure. And James's counsel is a little bit different. He says, endure and watch God give you life. And again, look at what the blessing is. The blessing is not being delivered from the trial. The blessing is found if you remain faithful through the trial. And that's what James is wanting to encourage these readers and these original recipients to do, is to see their lot to be faithful through the trial. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, once he has shown himself to be faithful through the trial, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. It's not the jewel-studded crown that kings and queens would wear. No, it's more the laurel wreath that was given to the winner of the race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Even uh, John in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 will say that do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. This phrase has been used to speak of eternal life. James is reminding these Christians that one of the ways in which we can know that we belong to the Lord is through endurance and through faithfulness, even in difficult days. James is seeking to encourage the readers then and us today with this stunning reminder that God's favor is upon those who remain faithful to him during the trial. And if you have ever walked through a trial and somehow have remained faithful, your testimony is not, look how great I am. It's look how stunning God's grace is. He has kept me. And his favor has been upon me so that I would not walk away. He will faithfully give to those who endure. What's he give? This crown of life. And don't miss the last phrase in verse 12. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What attracts the reward isn't merely endurance, but the love for God, which prompted the endurance. The love for God, which prompted the endurance. And if we're honest, I have seen many friends, professing Christians, hit a trial and then walk away. And I'm just reminded that what was lacking was not an anchor of love for God. The crown of life is his gift to those who love him. And the way in which those who love him display their love for him through the trials is by remaining faithful to him. Again, J. Alec Motier, if you're looking for a commentary that would help you through the book of James, I would commend this one to you. It's the Bible Speaks Today series. Listen to what Motier says. Our progress towards this crown is carried along not by our powers of endurance, but by the depth and the reality and the pervasiveness of our love for him. We live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the loves of our heart. And James is encouraging these discouraged Christians, don't give up, don't grow weary. Continue to press into your first love. Brothers and sisters, if I can just encourage us, don't underestimate the value of fighting to cultivate your love for God. It will serve your soul to get you through difficult trials in perseverance and belief. And as I'm reading this, I just wonder, I wonder how many of you, I wonder how many of you believe this. 
Perhaps you're not a Christian, you're tuning in this morning, or you are a nominal Christian at best. I'm thankful that you've joined us, and I'm praying that this passage would be a kind confrontation to the life that you're living. You see, because what James does in James chapter 1, verse 12, is he pushes our eyes to look beyond the temporary hardships of this life and to look towards eternity. I mean, if, if, if this life truly is all that we can see here and now, then we don't need wisdom to know how to count trials as joy. If, if this life, the life that you live and see and the life that you can touch and feel, if that is all that there is, then all of this is pointless. It's pointless if there is not an eternity. If there's not an eternity, then let's just let ourselves dominate the center of our lives. Let's pursue pleasure and power and possessions and everything else that we want. But if there is an eternity, and James points our hearts to get beyond the trial to see there is something that awaits us at the end. If there is an eternity then we don't want to live for self and pursue only that which uh, we want because there's a glorious eternal life of reward that awaits those who belong to him and who are faithful to him. I wonder if you believe that. In God's kindness, you're listening to a sermon from the word of God telling us that there is an eternity, that there is a God who rewards those who are faithful to him all the way to the end. And this reward, this reward then will overwhelm every suffering, every trial, every heartache, every brokenness, every difficulty, every sadness, and every tear that you experience here. This isn't the only reminder to help Christians endure. Leads us to our second reminder. James writing, how can Christians endure amidst trials? So number one, to remember that God rewards those who endure trials. Number two, that we, not God, are responsible for sin. That we, not God, are responsible for sin. Look at verses 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James hasn't abruptly changed topics on us. No, it's rather he's telling them that the divinely designed trials intended to produce perseverance can and oftentimes are an occasion for temptation and sin. It's vital that we keep these things connected. And, and I just want to speak a word even to our students, our children, our students that are listening this is very helpful for you to understand and to realize as we follow along. This is not just for people that are older. This is not, no, this is something in which is uh, true of every human heart. And so what grace that you would learn this now. And so just listen to the word of God and think how this applies even to your heart in the midst of your stage and season of life. And so think about it. Divinely designed trials intended to produce perseverance are oftentimes an occasion for temptation and sin. You're, an, you're, a, you're a, an original recipient. You've trusted God. You believe that God is sovereign over all things. He ultimately controls and allows all things that happen to happen. And yet you find yourself spread out from those that you love. You find yourself being beaten, maybe even under the threat of death, just because you profess faith in Jesus. What is it that you're thinking? If you believe that God is sovereign over all things, at some point there's a fine line between God is good in all things and wait a minute, if God is allowing all of this, is God to be the one that's at blame for all of this? If God is allowing this and it's producing a sinful response in me or others, then is God the one that's leading me and others to sin? 
I'm helped by Tim Keller in his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, Walking with God Through the Problem of Pain and Suffering. And Keller says the stakes are high here because suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse one than you were before. Trials will either make you or break you, but you will not remain the same. And James is pastoring his readers to be most concerned when they encounter trials, not with questioning God, not with trying to understand why, but to be most concerned with their hearts. And he can't make the point any clearer. Look again in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. When. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It will happen to us all. When tempted to sin in the midst of trials... Let's be clear, James is saying, that is not from God. God certainly designs trials for the purposes that he mentioned in verses 2 through 4. To test us, to produce perseverance, because perseverance then leads to this completion and maturity. That's what God is seeking to do. His trials are meant for our health, not for our harm. His trials are meant to lead us to him, not lead us to sin. And to just make this point, James pulls out two things here about God that would be helpful for the, for the listener to understand and to remember and to recall to mind about God. It would be helpful for you and I this morning to remember, to recall to mind these truths about God. James says that God is neither tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You see what James is doing? He's appealing to the nature of God. There is nothing within his nature to which a notion of evil could even appeal. Think about that. Oftentimes we think of God as just someone who's a little bit better than us and different than us. He's wholly different than us, altogether better than us. There is nothing within his nature to which a notion of evil could appeal. And here's the truth about you and I. There's everything within our natures to which a boundless notions of evil would appeal. For example, when I gossip, I gossip because I am given over to pride. And I gossip because I'm given over to pride and I want to look better than other people. And so the temptation to gossip has something in me to which it can appeal to. It can appeal to my pride. It can appeal to my desire to want to look better than other people. But there's nothing in God to which evil can appeal. There's nothing even there that, would, that evil could sort of get its hooks in. And not only is he not tempted, but to tempt anyone else towards evil would be evil. And that's the last thing that God is. He has no trace of anything in him that is not perfectly good. Just the grace of God, four days of trials, is that you and I would be able to recall truths about God. Brothers and sisters, feast on the doctrine of who God is. That is not, that is not a study or an exercise that will prove futile. Divinely designed trials come to us, but never with the intention to entice us to sin. Well, if that's the case and then trials come to us and we are tempted to sin, then where does that temptation comes from? Where does it come from? And James turns our attention from the trial to our hearts. From the trial to our hearts to begin to understand how temptation makes its way into our lives. And so if I could just say at the outset, what James is going to make clear is that every sin is an inside job. No one is overtaken by sin. Every sin is an inside job. Sure, you will be sin against by others, but your choice to sin, your act of rebellion is an inside job. 
true, you have been shaped by formative uh, circumstances and formative uh, upbringings and uh, formative factors all throughout your life. But your choice to sin is not knowing, it's not owing to any of that. Your choice to sin is an inside job. It's owing to your heart. And James helps us see there's a difference between an external trial and an internal temptation. And just because external trials find their way to you doesn't mean that it's meant to serve as internal temptations. And so the trouble lies within. It's not with God. It's not with the trial. It's not with another person. It lies within. And so apply this. Apply this truth and this reality to your struggles and your trials even now. Think about the trials that you're enduring. Think about the trials that you're walking through. And how you are all out of sorts because you've missed the issue is not out there. The issue is in here. Do you see that the greatest issue in the midst of a trial is not merely the trial? The trial is not what's leading you to sin. It's in here. It's the human heart, which is wicked and deceitful. And James is also going to make clear that there is a difference between a temptation to sin and actual sin. Temptation is not sinful. You will be tempted in a trial. And I know Christians who have wrongly assumed that if they are walking closely with the Lord, they would be free of temptation. And that, my friend, if that's you this morning, that, my friend, is simply not biblical. Jesus himself was tempted, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. And so the Christian life is not the absence of temptation. No, the Christian life is a refusal to continue to submit to temptations. And what James does from here is he gives us a description of indwelling sin, sin that remains in the heart and lives of Christians on the other side of their salvation. The Christian life is not the absence of temptation. It's the refusal to submit to it. And it goes all the way down. Satan is crafty. He is oh so crafty. But Satan is not innovative. Commentator Doug Moo says temptation involves this innate desire towards evil as it's enticed by this superficial attraction to sin. And so the order is evil desire leading to sin resulting in death. And the metaphor he uses in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away, when he is lured and enticed and is hooked by his own lust. The metaphor there in verse 14 is drawn from fishing. Sin lures and sin entices just like bait appears and appeals to a fish, all the while concealing the hook. I wonder this morning how you in your specific trial are being lured into sin. Being enticed to forget about the hook and only focus in on the bait so as to take it. And it's helpful for us to see those two words there. When each one is tempted, when he is carried away and enticed. That that idea, the, the lure there, carried away. It's that he's just uh, overwhelmed and taken much like a fish. He's trying to fight against it to little to no avail. But then in verse, te- uh, verse 15, the metaphor changes. He goes away from this fishing, kind of being enticed and, and uh, appeal, appealed to and pulled into to the metaphor of childbirth. When lust has conceived It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is meant to be a sobering and frightening warning to us. What is sinful eventually brings forth death. 
What is sinful always brings forth death. One author describes sin this way. Its advertising agency is better than its manufacturing department. It always promises what it can't deliver on. It promises life and it brings forth death. It promises peace and it brings forth turmoil. It promises pleasure and it brings forth brokenness. Sin is deceitful. It never delivers as advertised and it brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, get this clearly. You can choose to sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. Those consequences have already been predetermined by God. And those consequences will lead you to death. Do not be deceived then, beloved brothers. This is, this is what James is writing. It's critical for us to distinguish between this external trial and inward temptation by giving attention to our hearts. And so this morning, I wonder how this hits you. I wonder in what trial this hits you. I wonder in what temptation this is hitting you in. What are the triggers when various trials come to your life? You just begin to, to give way and you allow sin to just take over and run its course. Understand you are not allowing some small sin to kind of come in for the moment. No, you are allowed. There's no such thing as a small sin because of what James says every sin leads to. It leads to death. And so James is warring with these original Christians to not give up being faithful, to not give in to sin because there's great temptation because life is hard. No, but to remain faithful and to endure, to know the patterns of our hearts so that we even know on the front end what it's like when this is going to come in. I'm just helped to, to see, if I was to look at verses 14, 15, and 16, I, I just see this sort of progression of deception, right? Our mind is meant to be the surveillance system of our souls. And I wonder how often and how many of us, the surveillance system is just broken because we're not allowing uh, or we are allowing things to come in to deceive our minds. Uh, temptation usually begins by deceiving our minds. And if sin can so disarm the surveillance system, then it has access to all of us. It oftentimes comes in disguise. It's trying to portray itself something that it's not. Temptation will say things like it's not a big deal or you have a right to this or this will make you feel better than God will. Or temptation will lie to you and tell you that you can stop whatever, whenever you want to. Just do it one more time. It really won't matter. The pleasure is worth the consequences. God is withholding good from you anyway or God is going to forgive you anyway. Temptation seeks to deceive our minds by overestimating its pleasure and underestimating its consequences. I'm just encouraged by the New Testament's exhortations. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, take every thought captive. Don't even allow the deception to take root. There are two appetites that we have and they can't coexist together. One is for the things of God and one is for the things of this world. And even Paul, Romans chapter 13, says, make no provision for the flesh. He says, you're going to starve one of these appetites. Make sure you are not feeding the appetite for sin. One of the best ways to stay hyper alert to deception is to just swim constantly in the sea of God's immeasurable riches. Just immerse yourself in God's goodness and his grace, and that will make you hyper vigilant ensuring that your surveillance is running on all cylinders. But it goes from deception to attraction, right? Temptation works through the things that we desire. We're not tempted to do things that we're not attracted to. It comes through our desires. And so, uh, so subtly and so slowly do our affections get locked on to other things and not God himself. We become enticed by our desires. And James is highlighting that in the midst of all of that, the onus of responsibility is not on other people. 
We tend to blame God or parents or our upbringing or our spouse or our children or our lack thereof, our, our fathers, the traffic, girls that aren't wearing as much clothing, different circumstances, house. We tend to blame everything else but us. And James is saying, no, sin is entirely yours. Sin operates in the realm of our affections. And the way to fight sinful desires is with more desires of Christ. Have you faced the reality that your sin is your own? And it's not owing to the trial. The trial is merely wringing out of your heart what has been there all along. And are you feeding the flame of the desires for Jesus? So it goes from deception to attraction, then to conception. And by this point, we're usually careening down the slippery slope. Being tempted isn't a sin. Temptation isn't a sin, but it's what leads to sin. And this process can be brewing for weeks and months and years until it gives birth. And there is no such thing as little sins. Each step is a step forward in this chain that's leading us to a certain trajectory. So I wonder if there's any confession, repentance that needs to happen in your life. Without question, I'm convinced that for every one of us, there is. For every one of us, there is. And I just want to be clear, your sin, even now, is per perhaps tempting you to think that you're all alone and you could never come clean with this. Sin wants you to isolate and think that you're the only one. And James is inviting us on the kind invitation of God himself to walk out from the darkness and into the light. Sin is always out to ruin us. It has a murderous intent that's meant to woo us away from the author and the giver of life. And then the last thing, deception, attraction, conception, destruction. And our response to our own desires that wage war within us, our response will determine whether we grow in godliness or whether we get worse. And James is emphatic. God tempts no one. Each trial may have an opportunity to sin, but each trial has not been given to entice us to sin. Friends, our fundamental problem is not out there. Our fundamental problem is in here. And the reality of who Christ is and what he has done, it will never seem beautiful to us. And Jesus will never seem necessary to us until we first reach a point where we begin to, our, to admit that our biggest problem is within. There are people who the same temptation can be placed in front of them and they don't give in to sin. And it's placed in front of you and you do give in to sin. Why is that? It's not because that is the sinful issue. Though it may be sinful, the, the sinful issue is our hearts. It's our sinful desires that seek to replace God, that seeks to lead us away from God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, much like Edmund, when he eats all the Turkish delight and he wishes he just has, has more, he keeps looking at the empty box and he just longs for more. And C.S. Lewis writes, the queen knew very well what he was thinking. For she knew that though he did not, uh, for she knew, though he did not know, that anyone who had once tasted the Turkish delight would want more and more and more, and would even, if they were allowed to, would go on eating until they killed themselves. James is warning his readers and us by extension to beware of the disordered desires of our hearts and our trials that, that, bring, uh, that bring out these temptations. What do you want more than God? What do you love more than God? Third reminder that James gives to help these Christians endure in trial. 
is this. God's generosity, not their trial, is most perplexing. God's generosity, not their trials, is most perplexing. Listen again to verses 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. As he's already done in this letter, James provides wise pastoral guidance to turn our attention away from our trials and even away from our own hearts and directs us towards the goodness and the generosity of God. We just sang, behold our God. And this is what James is encouraging these discouraged, spread out, persecuted Christians to do. And the transition, again, may seem a bit abrupt, but there's a clear connection. James knows that a particular temptation in the midst of trials is to begin to think wrong thoughts about God. James knows that an accurate knowledge of God is needed if we are not going to waste our trials. And he wants his readers to be convinced of God's character so that they will have confidence in him. James reminds them and us that God our Father is a superb giver. He is like no other. He provides us with everything that we need for life and godliness. He withholds nothing that we need. The text says, every good thing and every perfect gift, every good gift, every perfect gift, each and every one of them, each and every time is coming down from above, from the Father himself. The present tense there is he is repeatedly giving good gifts. Brothers and sisters, what do you have that is good that has not first been given to you by him? James is wanting to overwhelm the reader's hearts, not with thoughts about their trial, but with thoughts about how big their God is. And this is a divine perspective that they must have in the midst of trial, and it's one that we must have as well. And I love what James does. He draws the reader's attention to two facets of God's stunning, perplexing generosity. Number one, his creative work. He says in verse 17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights, the father of lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. You want a glimpse of the, the stunning generosity of God? Go outside and look up, look around. All of it is revealing his glory. Creation is testifying that there is a good, generous, and giving God. And the father, unlike the creation in which he sort of paints and sets day in and day out, sunrises, sunsets changing every day. This giver of those gifts, he never changes. He is always good. He is always gracious. He's always giving. He doesn't change. There's no variation in relation to his goodness or his generosity or his giving. He's always good. He's always generous. He's always giving. And thus he is always trustworthy, regardless of the severity of the trial, regardless of the duration of the trial. And James is wanting his readers to be convinced of this. And he's wanting you and I this morning to be convinced of this. They will not and we will not endure trials if we are not convinced of the generosity and the goodness of our God. And yet he goes even to a more beautiful work than just his creative work. Verse 18, he highlights his redemptive work. The section ends with James drawing the attention of the reader and our attention this morning to the generosity of God in salvation. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Think about, if you're a follower of Jesus, think about the moment where you became a follower of Jesus. What James is wanting us to do is to go to the moment before that moment. The moment behind our repentance and faith is this wonder that God himself would first choose us of his own will. 
He has brought us forth. And so as you reflect on your conversion, where does the accent fall? Does it fall on your choice of him or does it fall on his choice of you? We don't discover God on our own apart from him revealing himself to us. Again, J. Alec Motier. This is one of the most glorious truths in the whole Bible. That of his own will, he brought us forth by the word. It teaches us that salvation is truly all of God. For until new life is imparted, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. As totally unable, as is anything that is dead, to respond to God in repentance and faith. And so if anything is to first be done, it must first be done by him. If blessing or change is going to come to us, it must come from outside of us, for we are dead. Matir says, this is the greatness of divine mercy and the sufficiency of divine strength and the depth of divine condescension. Him coming down, all the work from initial choice to completed deed is his. This is not to underestimate or to throw out the responsibility of man to turn and to trust in him, but everyone who turns in trust, James is reminding them, first know that he pursued you. If our salvation depended upon our wills, then it would be as uncertain, as unstable as our wills are, which easily fluctuate. But James announces that this perfect gift of salvation has come down from above, from the father who created the world. Therefore, we can be secure in his love. And we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Sin brings forth death, but God brings forth the new birth that issues into new life. This is a striking example of the generosity of God. And it's meant in the midst of trials to leave us, just like it was meant to leave the original recipient freshly amazed and strengthened to resist sin. This salvation, how, how, how has it come? It's come by the word of truth. Our new birth took place as this word of truth was proclaimed to us, this gospel message of who Christ is and what Christ has done to overcome the sin problem, the heart problem that we have. So many times trials can obscure the goodness of God, but the word of truth anchors us to remember, to remember that he is generous and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's giving. And you say, but I can't see that in my trial. And James is saying, well, then remember the cross. If your, if your trial has so obscured your view of being able to be reminded of his goodness, then remember the cross. With Good Friday only five days away, we are reminded that in view of man's sin and his inability to get back to God, what did God do? At just the right time, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Earlier in the, the sermon, I made mention of the greatest problem that you and I have. It's not a circumstance problem. It's a heart problem. And we are unable of addressing that in and of ourselves and in great grace. And in the best news you will hear today, God has addressed that. He has made a way for you to be brought near you who were once far off. For you who were once his enemy to now be seated at his table as a family member, as a child of God himself. Christ died for us. God on that hill called Calvary did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, God makes eye contact from that hill to this moment. And he says, I gave my son for you and your sin. And if I gave him up for you then, how would I not also freely give you all things? James is wanting his readers James is wanting you and I to be overwhelmed at the generosity of God. That isn't just bringing us trials to produce something in us, but has used the most evil of trials to produce something for us. The death of Christ in response to his perfect life 
makes secure our right standing before God. And if Good Friday is five days away, in seven days, we will celebrate that the great enemies of death and sin, which our desires bring forth into this world and bring forth into our experience, sin and death were defeated. They were stripped bare of any power with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If God gave you what meant most to him for your sins, we can be certain that he is good and that he is generous. And you can be convinced that he will freely give you all things because that's the kind of God he is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just plead with you this morning, turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone, his work to overcome your heart problem so as to bring you back to God. And if you have questions about that or you want to respond to that and you say, I can't come and talk to anyone at the end of this service, please contact us in and through our uh, website. It would be our joy. Drop a line even now in the live stream comments. It would be our joy to follow up with you. James leaves us reeling in the stunning nature of God's kindness. He's not, a, he's not a God who tempts us to evil. He's thoroughly good. And if we understand this is who God is, then the big mystery that we're left to understand is not why the trial is so perplexing, but why in light of my sinfulness would God be so kind and generous to me? It's this Godward perspective this God-saturated perspective that James wants to impart to these readers so as to help them stand up under trial for their good and for the glory of their God. Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, we pray that it would accomplish its purposes and we trust and believe that it will. And so, Lord, would you... Allow your Holy Spirit to show us where we need to respond and how we ought to respond. And so would you, in this moment of silent reflection, speak to us, we pray. Show us, teach us. Your servants are listening.